0: So you may recognize this uh, painting here. It's a very famous Renaissance painting. Uh, This is the Madonna del Granduca, which means Grand Duke, um, mother uh, of the Grand Duke. Uh, You would think it'd be Madonna and Child, but anyway, it was painted for the Medici family by Raphael. And it is a part of the collection, the large, vast Renaissance collection in Florence, Italy. Don and I actually got to go there and, and see many of the pieces that are on display. And it was um, something that is very common in Christian, Christianity, especially during the Renaissance period. But do you notice anything peculiar? Well, for one, they're very white. You can laugh. They're very white, don't you think? I mean, Jesus wasn't a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Caucasian. (laughs) He and his mother were Jewish, Middle Eastern. And yet these guys look like European Anglo-Saxons. Now, I'm not too harsh on that situation because I think it actually points to a universal phenomenon that whenever the gospel enters a certain culture It works because it's incarnational. The gospel speaks to our deepest need and it addresses our brokenness that's caused by sin. So when it enters a culture, when the good news of Jesus enters a culture, those of that culture can't help but identify Jesus as one of their own through the lens of their own experience, their own story, their own context, their own culture. That's the power of incarnation. That Jesus became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. So close, in fact, that we think he is one of us. The problem is is that when people decide that He is one of us and never a part of anyone else. That's where the problem comes. Keep that in mind as we look at some other pictures from a church in Nazareth. This is the Basilica of the Annunciation. It's believed by some to be built on the site where the angel Gabriel came and announced to the young Mary, betrothed to Joseph, that she would conceive of the Holy Spirit and would be born of her the Son of God, Jesus. Uh, This church uh, is actually uh, several centuries after the first one was built during the Constantine period. This one was finished in 1969. It's in the center of Nazareth. Nazareth is a town of about 100,000 people, which is kind of a large town or small city, however you see it. But what's interesting is the ruins of Nazareth during the time of Jesus are just a few yards from this location. And It has been determined that by the archaeological digs that the size of Nazareth at the time of Mary receiving this annunciation and Jesus growing up would have been about 500 people. Jesus lived in the boondocks. He lived in the, he was a country boy. He wasn't a city boy. But if you visit this church, you would be very impressed by all of the artwork, paintings and sculptures and mosaics, uh, all sorts of uh, artwork that depicts Mary and her child, Jesus. But they have commissioned artists from all around the world to paint these things or create or sculpt these pieces. And they have all asked them to do it during the, through the lens of their own culture. So, for example, here are some of the paintings and tapestries that you'll see. There are five here that I've got shown. This is on one of the walls of the Basilica of the Annunciation. One from Ethiopia. Doesn't look like that one from Raphael's painting, does it? And from France. Italy. Raphael was Italian, so, but this one looks a little more Italian if you think about it not so blonde-haired, Bulgaria, Belarus. Here's two more. One of them is from Korea. It's actually a mosaic with tile. It's huge. It's massive. And then the one next to it I've got there is from Greece. That shows a real ethnic look to their skin tone and the fact that they don't look white like me. Here are three more. From Romania, Thailand, Singapore. Don't you love Mary's outfit in Thailand? That's cool. Maybe you can guess these three. The first one on the left, where do you think that one's from? China. China. The second one, is another mosaic, Japan. Look at the kimono. Look at Jesus's hair. Cool. You know, we always say babies, why is that so much hair? Yeah, Jesus, you got a lot of hair. And then the last one, Cameroon. West African country. I love this one. It's my favorite. It's actually based on the scripture from Zephaniah 3.10 that reads, from beyond the rivers of Cush, Or some translations say Ethiopia. My worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. When you read this section of Zephaniah 3, it's actually talking about the conversion of nations into God's family. It's powerful. I think all of this beautifully displays the diversity in God's people. It vividly depicts The church, which is made up of every nation, every race, every tribe, and every tongue. Just like Christine told us earlier. Christianity is not a white, western religion. This is the danger of what we're facing so much in the American church. From the beginning of the church, on the day of Pentecost... The church has always been multicultural, always multi-ethnic, always multilingual. It is a movement of God that is not restricted, but rather open to all who will receive Jesus Christ as Lord. But it begs this question of us. How is it that you and I, unless you're Jewish, I think Roger's Jewish, right? Is there anybody else Jewish here? Joe, so other than Joe and, and, and Roger, you guys, we understand how you're in on, the, on this good news because Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, but how is it that the rest of us have been invited in to the chosen people of God, the family of God? How is that possible? Well, Paul actually speaks to it, and if you have your Bible or device, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. As we consider this portion of scripture, we're looking at this idea of growing up into Christ. In Ephesians three, verse one, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul starts out by saying that he is a prisoner not of Rome though he is detained by Rome at the time. But he says he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. Now This is a fascinating piece to me because I wonder how many times in our lives we feel detained by some external force, but we're not recognizing that we are first a prisoner of Jesus. Is it possible that whatever external force is limiting you is actually an opportunity for you to see yourself as imprisoned to Christ And he says, not only am I a prisoner of Jesus, but I am imprisoned on your behalf, on behalf of the Gentiles, not a prisoner of Rome, which technically it was, but he sees his imprisonment with higher purpose and significance. And it was on behalf of these that he's writing to who were largely a Gentile population All you have to do is look at the ridicule, harassment, and even physical beatings that Paul received to understand that Paul paid a high price to be a messenger of Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. It cost him dearly. He was constantly bending over backwards on behalf of his Jewish brothers and sisters, But he was always unwilling to let the Jews force upon the Gentile believers unnecessary adherence to Jewish customs. Knowing none of that would make them any more saved than God's grace already had. Three times in these verses, Paul uses the word mystery. And he doesn't use it like we might where you're trying to understand an unsolved puzzle. No, he is speaking of something that was once hidden, but that is now out in the open. It is revealed for us. He speaks it in plain language. He says it so clearly, and I read it, verse six. Let's look at it again. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That pretty much sums up Paul's whole ministry. That, in one sentence, sums up what he gave his life for. And it's been the theme of this whole letter, all throughout the letter written to the Ephesian church. He's been speaking of it, like in chapter 2, when he says Christ has, is bringing together Jewish and Gentile people, and he is bringing them together, forming one new family. He is breaking down the walls of hostility in his own flesh. He is taking the two and replacing them with one new humanity. It's Paul's message, and it is radical for the day. We don't think it to be so radical. We don't see the hostility and the the division that was so evident to everyone in Paul's day. But this is huge. It is the massive issue of the day. Jews did not see Gentiles... Well, they might have thought, sure, eventually God will weave them into his plan. But they never could imagine that Gentiles would be on equal footing with God's chosen people. Paul is blowing their belief system out of the water. He is radically revolutionizing the way the message of God would go forth from that day. And he is declaring that Gentiles, all the nations, all the other nations, that they are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul continues in verse 7 of Ephesians 3. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay, I changed my mind. That's the better mission statement for Paul. That summarizes what his life was all about. That he would preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the, what is the plan of the mystery. There's that word again. Something once hidden, now revealed. Hidden for all ages in God, who created all things. Verse 10, so that... I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on your behalf. But don't feel sorry for me. This is all that the mystery can be made known and that you can belong. Wow. Such a rich, full, dense portion of scripture. I could spend days just talking about the nuance and meaning and significance of what Paul is writing to these that he loves so dearly. In the Ephesian church, this whole letter is just brimming full with God's goodness and and power and revelation. Like the fact that spiritually dead people, he says back in chapter 2, are made alive in Christ. That blows your mind right there. And that former enemies, Jewish people and the other nations, are now being brought together as one family to form the church, a new humanity. But Paul blows our minds even further, at least mine, as when he says that what God is now doing is using this new family, the church, to reveal his wisdom to all the spiritual forces and authorities in heavenly places. Of all the things God could use to display his wisdom, I'm fascinated. No, I'm shocked that he would use the church. I've said it before. I'll probably say it again. Just look at us. We're a mess. The church is a mess. Full of hypocrites and full of People that are imperfect and people that are divided over all sorts of issues. And yet, Paul says, God has chosen the church to reveal his wisdom to the cosmic rulers and principalities of darkness. He's chosen the church to reveal this wisdom. Just think about all the things God could have used. (laughs) He could have shown his wisdom through the complexities of the universe or through the vastness of the galaxies beyond or through the intricacies of the human genome. That's fascinating. He could have just put that on display and said to all the principalities and rulers of the dark age, look at this, aren't I amazing? Aren't I wise? But God chooses to use the church. The church to show his manifold wisdom. Now, that word manifold, that's a whole nother series of messages just right there. Manifold. It means many sided. And it was used to describe the embroidered patterns that were typically applied to coats or cloaks of wealthy people, very ornate, very intricate. Manifold could also refer to the multiplying of one channel into many. Like, think about the intake manifold on your car engine. Now, some of you are looking at me like, what? Some of you know what I'm talking about. The manifold allows for the fuel and air mixture to be distributed evenly into each of the cylinders so that those cylinders can cause the car to move, I think. (laughs) I really don't know. But I do know that the manifold distributes from one center chamber into many. It also helps us to think about the multifaceted, multi-sided nature of a diamond, That multi-faced diamond, the more faces on the diamond, the more facets, the more beautiful, the more luster is seen, the more shine comes off of it. All of this helps me see the multi-dimensional, multi-faceted nature, the manifold wisdom of God. It helps me see how intricate it is, how multi sided it is, how incredibly rich and colorful and beautifully patterned, multifaceted. Just like the multicolored, multicultured, multiple faces hanging on tapestries in a Nazareth church. Somehow, the diversity, and uniqueness of churches all around the globe, historical as well as future. Somehow the diversity of all of that shows the multifaceted manifold wisdom of God. And so when you see someone that looks differently than you do and yet as Pete and Christine told us earlier are redeemed and forgiven and a part of his family, then God is just showing off his wisdom one more way. There's just one more facet of what he's trying to portray. And you can't be separated from that face any more than can you be separated from your own. For we are all one new humanity. God's plan is larger than any of us can imagine. He uses the church where Jews and Gentiles and any other enemies, formerly enemies, can become brothers and sisters, part of the same family. He uses the church to teach rulers of darkness and principalities a lesson. He's schooling them. And as such, they are dumbfounded by God's wisdom. They don't quite get it and yet the manifold multifaceted wisdom of God shocks them how he tore down walls and brought together fallen warring hate-filled humans and made them into one new redeemed body and as theologian John Alexander Mackey put it the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels You know what this means? It means that for our little church, as we continue to grow into Christ and mature and stabilize and go further and, and do all the things God has called us to do, as we do that, demons are being schooled. We're a tangible reminder of their defeat, of Jesus' victory, And of the Holy Spirit moving among God's people to prepare us for his return and the marriage supper of the Lamb. The advancement of God's kingdom will not be hindered. And the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted, diverse wisdom of God from one source above distributed into many vessels, it will be prove to be the only wisdom there is. God intends to use us, you and me, his church as proof of his manifold wisdom to redeem fallen man and have for himself a forever family. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.
1: I'm going to read a portion out of the message um, before we pray. This is in Ephesians 3. So this is our life work, helping people understand and respond to this message. God sees to it that we are equipped, but you can be sure it has nothing to do with our natural talents. We will demonstrate and communicate about things way over our heads. The inexhaustible, multifaceted riches and generosity of Christ. Our task is to bring out into the open and make plain what God, who created all of this in the first place, has been doing behind the scenes all along. Through followers of Jesus, like us, gathered in churches, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. Wow, that's so good. We have experienced Christ personally in our own culture, and I don't mean by that our American culture, but the culture of us individually, our families, where we come from, our experience. And he did become one of us That's right. so that we could become like him. That is the good news from start to finish. And we are equipped to live it and to share it and to communicate it, not because we understand it, But because, like Christine said, we've been forgiven. It is the qualification. That's right. So, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, such an extraordinary gift to bring your son to life as a man so that we could get a glimpse of the fatherhood of God. Hmm. That we could be equipped through your forgiveness, that we could be commissioned as ambassadors of your gospel. Make us brave, Father. Make us conscientious to the mission. Give us obedience. Give us humility to take all of the rich and varied ways that you've expressed yourself in us and to us and that we would give generously and without hesitation what has been so freely given to us. Yes, Lord.
0: Lord Jesus, we thank you for tearing down the walls. You tore down the wall of hostility between those who saw themselves as the chosen ones of God And those who were always told they were outsiders. But you tore the wall down in your own body, and you're making one new humanity. God, we repent and confess of our own walls that we build up. You became flesh and dwelt among us, and you sent us out even as the Father sent you, and yet we have to admit to you, we're really good at building walls to keep us separated and divided from those you called us to love, to reach out to, to communicate the good news and gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So Lord, help us not be wall builders, but help us to be bridge builders, dwelling among those that need the gospel, love, forgiveness, and power of God in their lives. Help us as a church community, Lord, to school the demons, to give him a lesson in what God's wisdom can do. Not that we're wise in ourselves, but his wisdom from above is distributed to each of us as we respond and obey him. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to live these words, to see the church in a different way, and to be your light and your peace, just like Lucia is, to our whole community, to the world beyond.